0: Good morning City Light. Uh, If you're new to this family, my name is Mo. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, Man, we've been in the book of Hebrews for a few months now. It's been an awesome journey and today is the last Sunday of 2018 where we'll be in that book. Um, We will continue in 2019 just in case you were excited. Um, But no, this is a a really cool season of the year. Uh, I, I always enjoy this part of winter. Other parts, not so much. But this part right here, I really enjoy because, uh, man, we get to celebrate the the arrival of our king. We get to celebrate Jesus, the reality that he came and was actually born in this world. We get to celebrate his birthday. And so it's a big deal. Like, this is a, a great season, and, and we spend the entire year, we talk about Jesus, learn about Jesus, create more relationship with Jesus, but then we get to set aside some specific time just to celebrate that reality. And so it's a really cool season to be in. Now, uh, For today, though, uh, let's open up our Bibles, if you have one, to Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, Like he said, we're going to be in the 22 verses of that chapter, which uh, we have a lot to cover, but it'll be really good. Um, Now, as we've been journeying in the book of Hebrews, what we've seen is that it's predominantly addressing a group of uh, ethnic Jews who were formerly religious Jews converted to Christianity. And what we've seen is that they're all over the spectrum when it comes to faith in Christ. Like there's some of them that are just kind of along for the ride. They haven't actually placed their faith in Jesus. There's some of them who have given like a mental assent or acknowledgement to some truths about Jesus, but haven't really placed their faith in God. And then there's a group of them who actually have been faith-filled believers in Jesus Christ, and they're just being called into a greater uh, amount of maturity. Now, all three of these groups are in danger. They're in danger because if they confess Jesus, then they are in danger of persecution and possibly even losing their life. Now, the Hebrew author, though, he actually calls them into a place of warning, saying that there's an even greater danger than that. And the greater danger is falling back into religion, falling back into obeying God or being a good person for the sake of doing so, going through these rituals without actual faith in Jesus. So in order to call them into a greater, more grounded faith in Jesus, he has, he's been showing them that, hey, Jesus is greater than everything. He is better than all of it. And, and like us, they had a, like a, a baseline understanding or affiliation with God, meaning they had a belief that there is a God, and in order to appease this God, we must be good for goodness sake. Like That's the, kind of the, 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 under, the baseline understanding of God. And much of the Bible, as you walk through it, is actually showing that this system, this Santa Claus quasi-theology, doesn't actually work. In fact, the system of moralism and being a good person cannot be done on your own. Uh, We can't live up to the expectation or the perfection of Christ, and so there, there must be something or someone that reigns superior over our moralistic activity or our behavior or even our life. There's someone that must have more substance than that. And so for the Jews, they looked to the priests for that. They looked to the priests to say, man, that's the epicenter of religion. We're going to look to these individuals to lead us to God, and we're going to follow all of these rules. And, and, And they thought that religion would please God. The priesthood was so important to these people that the Hebrew author devotes chapters 5 through 10 just on the high priesthood just on that one thing the whole argument of the book of hebrews is that jesus is better right so he devotes one chapter to the angels jesus is better than angels then another chapter on jesus is better than moses and then another chapter on jesus is better than the rest that joshua offers but he devotes six whole chapters to the high priestly call he devotes six full chapters to this one place because it was so valuable so important to the jews now, this is the, the, the bring-it-home kind of moment for us, right? When we're looking through these six chapters, it's like this is a come-to-Jesus moment where Jesus wants to confront in these verses all the things or whatever we might have that we think is superior to Him. Anything that we might be thinking or, or valuing above Jesus Himself, He wants to confront that. And so for us, we may not have a priest, but, we, but God knows that we do have things in people that we elevate to superiority over Jesus, Things that aren't superior at all to him, but things that that can't even hold water to the eternal substance that he brings to our life. And so my prayer is that these verses shout over our hearts that Jesus is better than whatever you're holding tightly to right now. And so with that in mind, let's, let's take a look at the first few verses in our text. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of Most High God, met Abraham turning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And so the first thing we see uh, in our text is the superiority of Jesus' eternal priesthood, the superiority of Jesus' eternal priesthood. So Melchizedek, he starts out mentioning this guy named Melchizedek, and he is a seemingly insignificant figure in all of the Bible, because Melchizedek is only mentioned two times in the entire Old Testament. Jesus never mentions him by name. He wasn't a leader of Israel and like conquered some sort of great battles. In fact, he wasn't even a part of the nation of Israel at all. His life when it's spoken of, like the, what happens in his life, it's spoken of in three verses in Genesis 14, and that's it. Like just one and done on this guy's life. However, don't mistake brevity for insignificance. You see, our text brings up that Melchizedek met Abraham, the patriarch, the founder of Israel. And in according to Genesis 14 and verse 6, he, the king and priest of God Most High, blessed Abraham. And in response to that blessing, Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, which is a tenth, a tenth part. And he gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything that he had earned from his battle. That's what Abraham did. And so there's two reasons why this is super significant for us. One, the first reason is to point out how superior Melchizedek really is to the Levite priesthood in regard to both title and the scope of that ministry. So, so look at verse 1 one more time. It says he is Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of most high God. So let's break that down a little bit in reverse. The priest of God Most High or Most High God, this this phrase that's used is a name of God, but it's not the one that the Jews primarily use. In fact, the Jews used the the name Yahweh or Jehovah. Jehovah was the name that that God had revealed to Moses, and it was a very special word for them, very special name for God for them, is when when God said, hey, I am the I am, that's Jehovah. And so what would happen is, the, the Israelites wouldn't even use the name except for once a year. And it would be the high priest who would use it on the Day of Atonement for them. And so that's when he would speak that word out loud over the people. And then their neighbors and enemies, when they looked at Israel, they called them the people of Jehovah. So like, it was a very significant name for God. But when we look at Melchizedek, when we look at when it says God Most High or Most High God, it comes from the Hebrew word El Elyon. El Elyon is is not simply the God over Israel. He is the strong, supreme, sovereign God over all people groups. That's what El Elyon is. He is the God of both Jews and Gentiles. He's the, God, the sovereign God over every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's not like the priests where they, they looked at only the God of Israel. No, he said, I'm the, the God of all people groups. So when you see Melchizedek, his ministry doesn't span to just one specific people group or ethnicity. No, it goes, spans the globe. It's an all-powerful, all-knowing God who is God over all. And guess what? The same is true for us. Right? Like the God that we serve is not an American God. No, he is a God of all nations. And so as we represent him, as we uh, minister, we are ministering and representing him not to just us, but to the people of other places. That's our call as well. It also says that Melchizedek is king of Salem, which verse 2 says means he's the king of peace. And then it couples that with saying his name literally means king of righteousness. And so this is huge, right? So Israel had a lot of kings, and they had a lot of priests. The kings uh, were in charge of the priests, and the priests served the kings. And then when kings became or tried to become priests, well, that didn't work out so well for Israelites. Like, it did not work out well at all, right? But it says that Melchizedek was both. He was king and priest, both of righteousness and peace. So here's why this matters to us. Melchizedek was a typology, a type of Christ. So so here's what that means. So it's a theological word that basically saying that in the Old Testament, as you're spanning the entire uh, Bible in the Old Testament, you will see figures that represent, that are foreshadowings of Jesus Christ himself, the coming Messiah. And Melchizedek is one of them. So when you look back, they aren't Jesus themselves, but they are a precursor or a foreshadowing saying, hey, I'm pointing to the Messiah, I'm pointing to Jesus. And so that's, that's what he's pointing out, that Melchizedek is one of them. So before God put a temporarily priest, temporary priesthood in with the Levitical uh, priesthood, he puts in place one in motion that is wholly separate, completely different, wholly other than that priesthood, and in fact, superior to it which is ultimately Jesus' eternal priesthood. So anytime you see Melchizedek's priestly order, think Jesus' priestly order. In in, in verse 3, it says that that priestly order is eternal. It's forever. It's never ending. And that, that priesthood brought about perfect righteousness. It brought about perfect righteousness so that you might have peace with God, which makes sense, right? Like, in order to approach God, you must be perfect, And the old priesthood couldn't bring about that. They tried to accomplish it, right? They had sacrifices, but the problem was they themselves had to make a sacrifice for the people and for their own sin, and they had to keep doing it over and over and over again in order to please God. But the problem with that is it wasn't a perfect righteousness that was passed on. But they, they, they couldn't perfectly give righteousness. And so basically what's happening here is that we've seen that, they, that they, they're going to fall short of what God's requirement is, and so they, they would have to continue these sacrifices. But for us, Romans 3 is so clear. It says that we have sinned against a holy God, no question about it. But by placing our faith in Jesus, we receive his righteousness, right? A perfect righteousness, a righteousness that doesn't have to be reproduced in sacrifices but was one and done sacrifice, and then Romans 5.1 goes on to say that because of that righteousness that we've received, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? That's the gospel right there, is that the sacrifices of old were, one and, were not one and done, but this one is. We get Jesus' righteousness, and that grants us peace with God. This, this matters to us because if we stuck with the old priesthood, guess what? Peace with God is not possible right? Melchizedek's Jesus's priesthood brought about perfect peace with God through his son, Jesus Christ. So that, that, that's, that's what it's showing. It's showing that both the title of Melchizedek and the scope of his ministry as priest and king, priesthood. now the second thing that brings that, the reason why this is significant is the tithe. So to prove even more that Melchizedek priesthood is superior, the author goes back to what he was talking about in verse 2 and then starts talking about it again in verse 4 through 10. He brings up the fact that Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. So let me explain the tithe, okay, because that's not a word we really use. But the tithe at the time... And even what I would say, argue is now, what they would do is they would give a tenth of their money or their possessions, which was the equivalent of money, to a priest. The priest was representative of God, so what they were doing was giving it to the priest as worship, as praise to God for his blessing, right? Like that's, he had already blessed them, and so therefore they gave a tithe. So catch this. Abraham, the founder, the leader of all of Israel, given a covenant by God saying, hey, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to be a blessing to other nations. And as you represent me and tell them about me, they're going to experience that blessing. Now, many people would look at the, the, the word tithe and the understanding of tithe and say, oh, that's, that's a part of the law. Right? They would say, yeah, that's part of the law. Well, verse 5 confirms that it is a part of the Levitical priesthood. So basically, Israel, the people of God, gave 10% of their finances to the priests in worship to God in response to God's blessing. Right, So that, that's, that, that's true. However, when you look at this text and you look at Genesis 14, the tithe predated the law. It existed outside of the law because Abraham gave a tithe, paid a tithe to Melchizedek because Melchizedek gave him God's blessing And so therefore, in response, he gave him a tithe. So catch this. Don't miss this. It has always been, when it comes to giving, it is done in response to God's blessing. You see that? It has always been that giving is done in response to God's blessing. So City Light, don't think that we're excused from tithing. Like, don't don't think that just because we're saved by grace, we no longer have to worry about that, or because we're in the New Testament era, that this doesn't apply to us, because all of the commands of God that we see in Scripture, when Jesus steps on the scene, well, guess what? It increases. It intensifies. Think about it. The law said, thou shalt not murder, right? Jesus comes on the scene and says, don't even hate them, Right? The law says, do not commit adultery. Jesus comes in and says, don't even look at somebody with lust in your heart. And so when we look at the commands of God, we must look at giving in the same way that that though the commands, yes, we don't have to obey them to appease God, but it doesn't mean that they're gone. It means that they actually are elevated because Jesus makes it possible for us to obey them. So here's the question in everyone's mind at this point, right? So Mo, are you saying that I need to give 10% of my income to the church? Okay, That's the question, right? And saying yes or no to that, I think would actually cheapen the principle of generosity and giving that Jesus teaches in the New Testament when it comes to his mission. I think it would cheapen it. You see, the tithe or giving according to God's riches is not a percentage. So the better question would be, is the 10% or whatever percent you might give, is that in proportion to the blessing through Jesus that God has poured out in your life? Is the amount, is the percentage in proportion to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ poured out on your life? That's the question we have to ask. The challenge is not to ask the question of what's the minimum requirement. That doesn't give God glory. What's the minimum? Like, think about that. If I came to Colleen, my wife, and was like, hey, honey, so what's the minimum amount of time and affection I can give you so that we're good? right? Like, it ain't gonna work. She's not gonna be sitting there with me anymore, right? Like, it's like, see you later, buddy, if you're just trying to do the minimum in this thing. Like, it doesn't work that way. And so in the same way with God, we can't ask that question of, like, what's the bare minimum that I can give of my finances so that I, you, I just, you don't bug me anymore about it, right? Like, that's the question that religion asks. What's the bare minimum? The question that people that are truly saved by grace ask, they're not worried about the minimum, They're asking, how much can I leverage? How much can I sacrifice? They're brainstorming ideas of how much I can give in proportion to in gratitude to how much I've been blessed by Jesus' sacrifice himself. That's the question that we must ask. Is what I'm giving, is what I have, is Jesus superior to it? And so Abraham giving to Melchizedek is showing just that, right? It's showing that, hey, Melchizedek is actually superior to the priest that we used to tithe to. Melchizedek's priesthood acknowledging his superiority as the representative, the foreshadowing of Jesus. So catch this. If you're tracking, what this is saying is God's coming after us and saying, hey, if you really want to display a tangible way that Jesus reigns superior in every aspect of your life, one of the primary places he speaks to is your wallet. Right? Right? Like, if if you want to show that Jesus is superior over all of these different things, he's saying, hey, money is the place that I'm going to come after right now. I mean, he uses this in Holy Writ. Like, he speaks about the tithe in all six of those verses there, 4 through 10, saying, hey, I know my people well enough to know that I might reign and rule in some aspects of their life, but this is the hardest one. And so is there anything more superior? Let me ask you, is there anything more superior for you to invest in than Jesus and his mission through his church? Anything. Then people come to know Jesus. than people having faith in the Lord Jesus for all of eternity, is there anything more valuable than that? So by pointing out that Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, the author is showing to his Hebrew church that Jesus is worthy of even greater honor than even the Levitical priesthood that they honored so much and held in high regard. See, Jesus was the fulfillment of the priesthood that, they, that he was speaking of with Melchizedek. Uh, like the Hebrews in our text, though, we're in trouble, right? We're in, in trouble, in danger of saying that at different aspects of our life might reign superior to Jesus. And so we must not only recognize what those places are, but also that, they are, that they're from the old life. They're from our old nature. That's why we're holding him the superior in the first place, and we need to see that Jesus has a greater substance for us. He is of greater substance for us. Let's pick it up in verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So the second section, we see the substance of Jesus's eternal priesthood, the substance of Jesus' eternal priesthood. So I had us read verse 19 on purpose, okay? So no, I didn't skip all of that. We're going to talk about that too. But verse 19 is kind of the hinge point of this whole section. What it's saying is that there's no other way to draw near to God but through the high priest, Jesus Christ. That's what it's saying. It's just pointing out there's no other way to draw near to God. And so the author, beginning in verse 11, starts to tell this Hebrew church, hey, everything that you've believed, I'm replacing it. Right? <laughs> like, I'm flipping it upside down. I'm, I'm going to flip your whole faith on its head. And he's showing them that, that their old faith doesn't work anymore. So you see, remember the, the danger that I was referring to earlier, that they were in the danger of going back to rules and rituals and regulations for salvation. And, 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 and please believe me that that's not just the issue for them. Like, we struggle with this too, am I right? Like, we, we struggle with going back to the old life that we had. After walking with God for any period of time, we start to drift a little bit back into that old life, thinking or behaving in a similar fashion. I remember this, and some of you college students are in the same predicament. When I did college ministry with crew, we would always, before every single break that was coming up, whether it be fall, Christmas, summer break, I'd, we'd give this warning and say, hey, guys, you all are going back home. And when you go back home, you're going to get used to how things used to be, right? Like mommy's going to do your laundry, Hopefully not um they're going to have those meals you're going to be all snuggled up on the couch you're going to be really comfortable and what that temptation is going to bring about is you're going to put jesus on the shelf and start to go back to the way you were before you came to college you're going to go back to the place that you were before you started this thriving awesome relationship with jesus and so what we were warning the students is that they will be tempted to put jesus on the shelf and go back to an adolescent faith at best a faith not rooted in the fact that Christ was crucified and buried and raised from the dead. A faith that's not rooted in a continual growing relationship with Jesus, but one that's really just based on morality and making yourself happy. That's the drift. And verse 11 through 14 is saying that that old way of doing things, the sacrificial system of the priest, what was not sufficient to bring about peace with God. You see, if it was sufficient, we'd still be slaughtering goats, right? Like we'd still be, you know, all day long for our sin in order to appease God. But it doesn't work. It, does, it doesn't work at all. And so that priesthood had to not only be done away with, it had to be replaced by something else, something greater. So he explains that that going back to that would be meaningless and not helpful. It lacks the substance needed. And the substance that's needed is an eternal sacrifice, a sacrifice that doesn't have to happen over and over and over again, but one and done. And, and, and that priesthood didn't have to just start a new priesthood, but we had to replace that priesthood with an eternal one that doesn't have to continue those sacrifices. An eternal priesthood. So Hebrews 10, 4-7 says this. It says, For it is imp- impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings? You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, "Behold, I have come to you to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the of the book." You see, our personal sacrifices or our moral activity, our religious activity, will never satisfy the wrath of God. Like, think about it. If I go out and get a speeding ticket going 100 miles an hour down O Street, police officer pulls me over and I say, hey, I've done a, really, a lot of really good stuff before that. And then after that, I'm going to do even more good stuff after that. Do you think that officer is not going to say, hey, pay me? Right? Like we got an official here who would prosecute me real quick. Anyway, uh, that would happen, right? Like I, I still have to pay that ticket. Like, it doesn't matter how much good I do on the front end or the back end, it will not appease the fine that I owe. And so we needed another kind of priesthood. We needed another kind of sacrifice that would actually work, that would up, uproot that work-based faith that we had beforehand. The priesthood of Jesus doesn't simply start another priesthood. It both precedes the, the, the Levite priesthood, but then it also replaces it completely. And if that's the case, th- there's a new way for us to live. There's a new way for us to be. The priesthood uh, of Aaron was temporary. They were like the reserve team coming in for a little bit, and then the varsity team steps in in just the right time, right? Like trying to win the game in this scenario, right? So Galatians 4 and 5 talk about that. just that right time. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that, this is huge, we might receive adoptions as sons. And so just a few weeks, we're going to be celebrating one of the most pivotal moments in history. I think there's two pivotal moments, Christ coming and then Christ's resurrection. But we're going to be celebrating that because just at the right time, God sent his son Jesus to be the perfect high priest that we needed. He's the perfect sacrifice that we needed. He sent him to be the redemption for us so that we're no longer under the law, but we're actually the adopted children of the most high God. See, God sent his priests, according to verse 16, not based on the law of legal requirement, but based on an indestructible life. A resurrected life is what he's talking about. That life will not be destroyed, so it's a guarantee. You see, the old way was a picture. It was a a foreshadowing of, of what was to come, of what the substance of the eternal priesthood would be where you no longer needed the old one. The priesthood of Aaron was full of corruptible man. It was full of people who were imperfect that would eventually die and be replaced by a descendant and not replaced by someone who was called out by God. You see, Jesus came as the Son of God, born of a virgin in power with life that never, ever ends. You see, he, he may have died at one point, but he didn't stay that way, right? That's the victory. Verse 17 is quoting uh, David's Psalm 110, which if you've been here, you've heard this several times. Psalm 10, Psalm 10, Psalm 10, because the author of Hebrews apparently likes that because... Jesus' priesthood lives forever. It is an eternal priesthood, never ending. So when we've talked about Melchizedek's priesthood, which preceded Aaron's in the Levitical priesthood, this means that Jesus' priesthood was ruling and reigning prior to the establishment of the law and Aaron's priesthood, right? And so it has no end. But not only, this is, this is a profound thing, not only does his priesthood not have an end, we usually look at that in the future tense, but it has no beginning either. Right? Like, God, Jesus has been priest and king from eternity past. From the creation of the world, that's where he's been. So his priesthood didn't start 2,000 years ago. No, it predated Melchizedek. It predated the creation of the world. And that matters. That matters because whether you like it or not, Jesus is priest and king. Whether you make him priest and king of your life, doesn't matter. He is. That, that, he has always existed as priest and king. And yes, you might have your own priest or king in your life. But you won't have to give an account to them. But we all have to give an account to him. We all at some point will give an account to him, which is why it's so beautiful that Jesus is our high priest. You see, a high high priest intercedes for the people. He doesn't lord it over them. Interceding meaning he stands up for them. He sacrifices for them. He speaks on their behalf. We need that, right? Like he's a high priest that we didn't just need back then. We also need him right now. Right? We need a priest. We all need a priest to have our backs to stand with us here and now and into the future as well. You see, we all have this temptation to, to back away and go back into the old life, and so we need a priest to continue to draw us back near to God. So you want to know when, when, you're, when you're starting to drift into going back into the former way of life? Well, sometimes it's just going back to the old sin that you used to do, right? Right? Like, we know that. It's very apparent when that happens. It's like when when you go home and you're sitting around your mom and dad for a little bit too long, and before you know it, you start acting like your old teenage self. Just me? Cool. Anyway, uh, (laughs) however, more times than not, it's more than that. It's more than simply just doing the sin that you used to do. No, it's far more tricky than that. Look at verse 18 and 19. It says, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. So to drift back, let me mind you real quick. To drift back is not simply just drifting back to your life prior to you confessing Christ as Lord and Savior. To drift back is also some of those things that you held on to after that. And so you could drift back into those old temptations. And really, what this one's talking about, simply put, is drifting back into your religious behavior, right? The the former life that was weak to save you to begin with, where you obeyed lots of rules and regulations or you did what you were supposed to do just because you were supposed to do it. That's also a drift. And, and basically what you do is you we, we count that moral activity or doing what you're supposed to do as sufficient and consistent relationship that's sustaining with God. And it's not. In fact, it, what it is, is going through your day-to-day moments without acknowledging the present in, presence of the Holy God of the universe in it. It's, it's trusting the sufficiency of your morality and not the eternal righteousness of Jesus. So catch this. You can fall away from walking with God by going to your old life either in rebellion or religious activity. Rebellion or religious activity. So let me ask you, City Light, are you drawing near to God? Are you drawing near to him? Because Jesus didn't just simply die so that you get to go to heaven and be with him for all eternity. He did do that, but not only for that, but so that you can here and now draw near to God himself. Like he, he did away with the law of just obeying rules and regulations so that you might have a relationship with him, so that you might actually please God because Jesus' righteousness has been poured out on you. Last week, Ricky talked about how, how um, how Jesus is, is our anchor, right, our, our, the anchor of our soul. And what he's saying is, like, man, you need a deeper, more affectionate, abiding life with Christ. And there's so many of us that aren't in danger of losing our life because of our faith, but we're in danger of losing our faith because of our life. We're in danger of choosing to put other things in our life as superior over Jesus, We're we're in danger of devoting ourselves to other people or other things or or creating this hierarchy of of aspects of our life to be over Jesus rather than cherishing him all all in all. You see, this is the whole point of this text right here. Jesus comes as our priest who doesn't temporarily free us from sin but eternally frees us from sin so that we might draw near to God. And it's promised like, of all things, it is promised by God that that is the reality. See, the former priesthood with Aaron, it didn't have an oath. It didn't have a promise, but Jesus does. He gives us one and says, Hey, not only do I promise it's going to happen, I'm going to see it through to the end. That's what an oath is from God. Verse 21 and 22 say this The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor. Did I say that right? We good? Okay. Of a better covenant. I told y'all to help me out with that. What happened? Anyway, the word covenant there is a very important biblical word. In fact, it is talked about throughout the entire Bible. Simply put, a covenant is a contractual agreement between two parties. And so the book of Hebrews from this point forward is going to talk heavily about that, but I'm going to create some brevity for us and tell you that in this place, when it talks about the covenant, it's talking about the covenant that God had made in the past with us and how it sees its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the guaranteer is my word, Okay, not the Bible's word, the guaranteer of this promise. Anyway, so, so what I'm saying here is that Jesus made a promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 where there will be an even better and even greater hope to come, where, it, where this person who, is, who will eventually be the sacrifice of Jesus Christ will make it possible for sinful man and woman to approach and draw near to God. That's the covenant, that's the promise that he made, that that human beings can have peace with God. He made it all the way in Genesis 3.15 and said it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself. And so when you read your Bible, what you see is that throughout the entire Bible, we have this covenant with God that he holds up his end of the bargain and we don't. Right, like we continue to fail and falter throughout every single time. He's like, hey, I got y'all. And we're like, nah, we don't. And that's just how it goes throughout the entire Bible. You see this massive failure. We're always constantly messing up and, it's, and, and we do it now. We still promise say, God, you know what? I'm never going to touch that again. And then tomorrow we fail at it anyway, right? Or oh, we are look at God and say, hey, I'm going to be in the word. I'm going to invest deeply in my relationship with you. And then tomorrow our Bible stays on the shelf, Like We continually break this covenant. And what happens in this world if we break a covenant? If we break a contractual agreement, well, then it's void, right? Like it no longer exists. That person that you made that agreement with, like, I'm done with you. I'm out. But praise be to God, the good news of Jesus Christ is the fact that God never breaks that covenant with us. Even though we break it, he upholds his end and held up our end with Jesus Christ himself. That's the beauty of the gospel. And then then he goes so far as to say that Jesus is the guarantee of that. The fact that he has an eternal life himself, he lives forever in relationship to us, that will come to pass. That peace of God will come to pass because Jesus lives forever. That's the guarantee. You see, I can make promises, all kinds of promises. And I can even tell you that I guarantee it, but I have no power to make sure that that promise goes through, and I don't have the indestructible life to make sure that it's guaranteed either, because tomorrow I can die, and guess what? You don't get my promise anymore. It's gone, right? But for Jesus, it's still there, right? He's still living, because Jesus, in his act of dying on the cross, also resurrected, both defeating Satan's sin and ultimately death itself. So if we've placed our faith in Jesus, that's what we get. We get him as our high priest. He has granted us righteousness so that we can be allowed to have peace with God and relationship with him. So it's simple, right? It's a profoundly simple thing, but it's very simple. That's how you get peace with God. And so if you haven't made Jesus your high priest, man, I'm just asking, what are you waiting for? Like, you still holding on to, like, being a good person? Like we said, it doesn't work, there is no amount of good that you, can out, that you can do to outdo any bad that you've ever done. It doesn't please God. The only life that pleases God is the life of Jesus Christ and receiving his righteousness, receiving his perfect life. And the only thing that you bring to the table in that is to confess humbly in faith that I know I can't do that on my own, but I know that you did in my place. That's the invitation. That's, that's what God would call you into today if you haven't. See, like like this church, we can easily drift away from our better hope. We can drift away from our better Savior, our superior priest and king. But the call for us is to see that Jesus is supreme, that he is superior over all, whether it be our finances, our time, trying to be a good person, or superior over even our sin in and of itself, our life. He is superior to. So I don't know what brought you in or what the thing that you came in holding on to, and it could be your kids. For some of us, it is. For some of us, it's our schedules. For some of us, it is our finances. For some of us, it's our jobs. It's school. It's that boy or girl that you like or love. It's that to-do list that you still have going on that you're going to have to complete when you leave here. I don't know what it is, but, man, I, I would just call you, man, please go to Jesus and say, reveal that to me and open my hands to see that, that it's inferior to who you are, Jesus. That, that's the prayer that we would see that Jesus is eternal, which means when you look at your finances, they're going to come and go, but he's not. He's better than the Melchizedek as a priest and king. He is better than him. He's better than the Levite priesthood, which means that relationship that you have that will fail you, his won't. He's the guarantee of this covenant, and there's nothing else in your life that is guaranteed other than him. See, he has an indestructible life that he has freely poured out to you and me so that we might have relationship with him. And our schedules, our to-do list, our jobs, our kids can't do that, and they won't. But he did. And so is there anything in your life that can truly contend with Jesus and the love that he has for you? Anything. And if not, then we can joyfully accept that reality that Jesus is better and live in response and in light to that because he is greater, he is superior. He died so that you and I might have a new life in him, a greater hope than we've ever had before. He died so that we might live in such a way that displays his glory, his honor, his praise, and the fact that he reigns superior over all of eternity. Amen? Let's pray.